I feel like I need a double-barreled shotgun here this afternoon. This goes in all directions, both sides. We're horticulturists today. We're going to talk again this afternoon about a, a vine or a tree and uh, learn a little bit about how we can illustrate spiritual truths with this truth. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his direction as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, and in your word you have used illustrations and comparisons and every, every grammatical and literary tool imaginable to communicate to us the spiritual truths that uh, we need to understand. So we pray, Lord, this afternoon as we look at this uh, this illustration of the olive tree to give us understanding and confidence in your word to trust you more and praise you more for your marvelous and wonderful plan in Jesus name amen well Pastor Wesco has been dealing with Isaiah chapter 5 and we've uh, talked about the vineyard which was God's vineyard and we found that uh, his servants were not faithful and were judged accordingly. And then we read the rest of that chapter, if you, if you remember that, and there comes after the story of the vineyard, the five woes, and things are looking pretty woeful in that chapter. It's getting pretty dark. Clouds are getting pretty thick, and we're wondering what's going to happen here with the nation of Israel. And we read finally in Isaiah 5.25, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Is it ever going to come to an end? His discipline in the nation of Israel. Well, of course, as we read Isaiah, we see some real bright spots. And mixed in with the dark alleys, we see some bright spots. There's a kingdom coming. There's a kingdom coming. But now we come to the New Testament, and we're, we're, we're re-challenged to re-examine this question again. Because uh, when the book of Romans was written by Paul to the Romans, it was near around 58, 60 A.D., uh, Jesus' death had been 25, 30 years previous. Things were really changing in the way people worshipped God. And yet they did not have the New Testament canonized and fully circulated. John would not even write his gospel in Revelation chapter 20 until A.D. 95. And so these people were kind of feeling their way along having to depend upon their relationship with God and the Holy Spirit and the apostles to direct them and help them in their thinking. And there was a big question, you know, what about Israel? What about its future? Here it's in disarray, and the pressure from the Romans was mounting day by day. And so there came along uh, reminders looking back to the book of Moses in the book of Isaiah, if you'll back up with me to chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Did not Isaiah know? First Moses saith, 
I will provoke, did not Israel know, excuse me. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. That's speaking of the Gentiles that God is going to work with in the New Testament. Here was a preview in the book of Moses of the coming era in which God would reach out and uh, work and save Gentiles. And that's mentioned here and there in the Old Testament. Not often, but here and there. Not specifically with regard to the church itself, but with regard to the salvation of Gentiles that God had in a future plan. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, now he's very bold because he says this in the midst of a, a strictly Jewish environment, Israelite environment, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. In other words, there were, um, there were people of the nations of the world in his day who were responding to his message to Israel to trust God that he was not seeking out, but that were just coming to him out of the woodwork, more or less. And yet, we get down to verse 21, and, and to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched out forth my hands unto a disobedient against same people, the very people who are of the root and stock of Abraham, the chosen people, the people that I'm called to minister to, my people, the people of God's special interests. They're not paying any attention. They're living in their wickedness and totally disregarding totally disregarding God's call to holiness. Well, now we move into the New Testament era, and here we are in this situation where uh, the future of Israel is again a bit in question to the person who's thinking and looking around him. Now, things are in disarray. Forms of worship are changing. Leadership is changing. It's, it's a different, different, if you will, ballgame than it was in the Old Testament times. And the question arises again, hath God cast away his people, chapter 11, verse 1? I say then, in light of the fact that even the Old Testament predicted Gentiles getting saved and becoming a part of God's program, and, and in view of the fact that in spite of that, the Jews not paying any attention to the fact that God is working among their adversaries, those that were always the unclean, still disregard God, is it possible, is it possible, hath God cast away his people? And the answer comes back a resounding God forbid. In the Greek language, it's the strongest negative denial that you can write, may genitoi, may it never be, God forbid, that he should forsake his own people. And the rest of chapter 11, down to uh, verse 25 or 6 right in there is a, a defense of this statement that God forbid that his people should be forsaken. Now, if you've read this chapter or even if you've looked at this chapter a little bit as we talked about it, you might zero in up here in verse 19 of chapter 10 on this, uh, on this I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people and by a foolish nation I will anger you. And you might wonder, hmm, nation. And you look down here, though, and say, hath God cast away his people? Well, you, there's a group of people out there that want to say that God did cast away those people. That group of people was around even in uh, Paul's day. 
as they looked around and saw what had happened. They had been so wicked in the way they treated the Messiah. And they said, God is done with that nation. He'll go to a new nation, Second Peter, the church. What do we call that? What, what theology do we call that, everybody? Hey, I heard a peep over here. Where'd that peep come from? Right there, say it nice and loud. Replacement theology. He's one of my special students that comes to my house every week to study these things. Replacement theology. Now, isn't that an appropriate name? Replacement theology. What replaces what? Somebody else, one of my students or somebody. What replaces what? Church replaces Israel. Okay? Now, this text is very relevant in that whole discussion. But we're not going to talk about that. We don't have time to talk about that. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time, a fair amount of time, studying how those people interpret this. You would think, for goodness sake, that when it says this, hath God cast away his people, and it comes back, God forbid, may genitoy. You'd think, how could anybody ever believe that he's cast off his people and substituted the church? It's such strong language. But they do. And I want to tell you something. It's persuasive. But I'm not going to talk about that today. I want to talk about what the text means, and maybe some other time we can come back to that. I, I may, if I can't resist, make a comment here or there. But otherwise... And it is true, when you understand this text just straightforwardly as we read it, uh, it is impossible to think that God has, has forsaken his nation of Israel and that he's replaced them with a different group. But let's look here. Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Now, if you look at your notes, there's some blanks to fill in. Uh, we've got three main points today that argue that God is not putting away his people. He's not forsaking his people. Number one, the present election, the present election in Israel. We've talked about election many different times, and I know some people, some of you here, are, are a little bit troubled by that doctrine. But believe me, don't look at all the problems of that doctrine. Uh, think of the, some of the positives about it. There are a lot of positives. It's very comforting to know that God is in control. And so he, this is the argument here. God, God is in control, and he's not going to allow that Israel should be, should be cast away. Number one example, God is interested in evangelizing the Jews. The apostle Paul, he writes, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Jew. He was a notorious Jew, wicked Jew. One of those that God had said he would destroy. But on the Damascus road, that all changed, didn't it? He saw the Lord there, and he got saved. A Jew in the church, he got saved, genuinely saved. And yet, he was a Jew of the very finest stock, a pedigreed animal, pedigreed prophet, you could say. He was of the stock, he had all the paperwork, he was all that he was supposed to be as a Jew. But now he had seen Christ as the Messiah. And he had become an apostle, not only an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
but an apostle to the Gentiles. But everywhere he went, he sought the Jews out first. And when the Jews wouldn't accept him in the synagogue, he'd shake the dust off his feet, so to speak, and he'd go on to the, to the Gentiles in the city. But here was our first proof. Israel is not going to die because Paul himself, writing this letter, has been plucked out of that nation and saved and lives as a living testimony that Israelites are saved in a part of God's program that continues on. Number two, there is always an unseen remnant. In fact, Paul is a part of that remnant. Now, he goes back here and uses an illustration from the Old Testament. God hath not cast away his people, verse 2, which he foreknew. That's the same as what he elected. What ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, that's Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. From looking around him, circumstances, his circles, he's the only one left. He had a pretty lonely feeling. It was like the nation of Israel was going to come to an end in his day. He had the same feeling that these Jews are having, or these, these uh, people are having here in Romans. But look how it turns out, verse 4. But what saith he the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. There was a whole group of people out there that were faithful to God that he didn't know anything about. You know, there's some lessons here for us. A couple of lessons here are already different lessons, uh, somewhat related to our text and somewhat different. You know, whatever your background is when you came to Christ and today as you look back over your testimony, God wants to use it to his glory. The Apostle Paul had an amazing background as a Pharisee. I mean, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, he was one of the top dogs, and God was going to use that. We're going to see how even more as we go along. Whatever your background, whatever it is, he not only had all those credentials as far as his Jewishness was concerned, but he had quite a reputation for how he persecuted the church, separated families, went into home and ripped families apart. We forget that sometimes about Paul. He was a, he was a very wicked man, killed innocent people and fam families, and yet he got saved out of that. Became a chief apostle, whatever your background, God can use it. And, and then we look at this remnant passage here, and we find you're never alone. Some people take this remnant idea, and they kind of twist it around, and they get the sorry, sorry soaps about themselves. Oh, I'm, I'm the only one left. Uh, or sometimes it's a self-righteous attitude. We're the only ones left that are true to the Lord. The rest of them out there are all wicked. The Bible says so. It says there'll be a remnant. Oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't ever get that way. Don't ever get that way. Always humble yourselves. One of the most exciting things of our family ministry some years ago was to find out how many different circles of Bible-believing people were out there that I knew nothing about 
that I touched on here and there as we went to different churches throughout the area. Amazing. Amazing. Little circle there, little circle here, little circle somebody else. Okay, then thirdly, as we continue on, we find that Israel's apparent loss yet is alive through an elect remnant. Well, let's look first. Israel's presence is by God's election of grace. Verses 5 and 6. Even so then, at this present time, he says, as Paul is writing, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more works. God has always left a remnant, an elected group of people. Uh, if you look, I, I skipped over it under, under B. Go back and look just a minute there. In different times, these different groups of people. In the ex exile, there were the four Hebrew children in Babylon that were sorted out and all alone. There was the end of the captivity. There's various prophets, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And during the 400 years, there's a group described as them that looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. When Christ came to the temple, there was Simeon, Hannah, John the Baptist. God always has his remnant, his remnant that he has preserved. I remember preaching through Isaiah. There were re repeatedly in Isaiah instructions set in the text for the remnant amidst all of the uh, calls for judgment and doom that were there. Israel's remnant, the election of grace, is God's election. He, it's, it's, not, it's not men that are going to make sure that Israel survives. You know, there's a lot of people over the last couple hundred years as we've seen Israel become a nation once more who've given their lives and are highly honored by their people for what they've done for Israel. And uh, I, I, that's appropriate for them and their nation and so forth. But what, what is it really that brought back the nation of Israel? It's the election of God. God is the one who is looking out for their people. Uh, Israel's apparent loss, yet alive through an elect remnant. Verse 7, what then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it was written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare, and trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. There was a certain blindness that came upon the children of Israel. In the Old Testament, when they would uh, refuse God's goodness to them, I mean, how many times did God intervene supernaturally in the history of the nation of Israel, leaving a testimony to them of the reality of his person? the omnipotence, the, the exodus, all, all the plagues, other miraculous events where he, 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 they had tremendous light. And now we come here to Romans, and we have the same kind of situation. Jews who had tremendous light. You would think, considering, and, and, you, and you see this meditation thought in the Old Testament, 
all the light that God gave to the Jewish people, that there would be masses of them converted, not just a few here and a few there and a couple plucked out of the fire. I mean, wouldn't there be mass conversions when they look back over their history? Same is true for us as we look back at our time with this Bible here, this completed scripture in our own language. The testimony of 2,000 years of Christians who've lived and martyrs who've died. Tremendous light. But you know, I, I've learned this in my night escapades sometimes. When I wander around the house in the dark, uh, sometimes I'll go in the bathroom and shut the door and turn the light on. And Like this morning, I was up and it was early and it was dark. And I went into the bathroom and shut the door and shaved and got ready to get ahead of the game this morning. And when I came out and turned the light off and the room was dark, I couldn't hardly see my way around. And yet in the middle of the darkest part of the night when there was no light on, my eyes adjusted and I could see perfectly walk anywhere in the room. You know, when God gives someone great light and then they walk into darkness, the darkness is really dark. And that's what this is saying. The Jews had so much light that when they walked into darkness, they were deceived in the darkness because they had refused the light. And so it appears there's no mass revival. There's no mass turning to God. It's, they can't see. They're blinded somehow. We're going to say some more about that as we go along. So to help you catch up in your outline here, I don't think I'm following you very closely, uh, there is the apparent loss yet alive through the elect remnant. Many hardened in judgment for their unbelief, and this explains why prospects look so bleak. There's so little response to God's offer. So there we have God always, the present election in Israel. All these have to do with God's election of Israel. It is God who is going to be the one that makes it possible for a people who have dismantled over 2,000 years to come back together with the same language in the same geographical area, many of the same cultural customs, the same basic religion, although liberalized in many cases. Uh, that's a work of God, and he's the one that's going to preserve his people. That's, that's an insurance policy you want to have if it's offered to you. And it is, by the way through salvation in Christ today, you have that same security. Number two, the future reception of Israel. Their temporary stumbling will lead to fullness. Benefit has come to the Gentiles as a result of their turning aside. Look at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world... And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Kind of, this is kind of a round-the-barn argument here. They, they fell because they rejected the Christ and cried out for his crucifixion. And he was crucified, indeed. And as a result of that, there were some Jews saved in those early days of the church. But by and large... The church became a Gentile organization. As the years went by, more and more and more of the church were Gentiles until today, almost, almost all the church are Gentiles. 
And they seem to have been turned away. They, they seem to have been done away with. God has not kept his people. But wait, through what they did and the death of the Christ, they now have salvation as well offered to them through Christ and can receive him and become a part of the church. And one day, when God takes the veil away, the act they did, which was their sin, and their, will turn to be the blessing for the whole world, as God had promised back in the Abrahamic covenant when he said he would bless all the, bless all the nations of the world through them. Now, not only do they have salvation, as it was in the Old Testament through Israel, but now through the death of Christ, which they went backwards to bring about, not only do the Gentiles have salvation offered, but they have now a chance of salvation through Christ. And one day Christ will move among them in a very big way. And when that happens, what appeared to be their downfall and demise will turn out to be the fullness of the ages as God uses it to bring the salvation of mankind all through the world, all through the world in the kingdom in the, in the tribulation kingdom age. Next, verses 13 and 14, the elevation. Okay, so A was the temporary stumbling will lead to fullness, fullness. Notice the closing phrase, how much more their fullness. We'll say something about that again in a minute. Verses 13 and 14, for I speak to you, Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. The elevation of Paul's apostleship among Gentiles may move Jews to believe. Whatever he can do. Whatever he can do. In other words, he's saying to the Gentiles, as I minister to you, if you respond to the gospel that I'm ministering to you and the church grows and thrives and becomes faithful to God, the Jews will sit up and take notice. And it'll be a testimony to them that they need to, to turn to the Messiah Jesus, that he was indeed their Messiah that had come and that they needed to accept him. So his elevation as an apostle among Gentiles may move Jews to believe. The more successful, the more likely the Jews are to believe. And then verses, verse 11. Israel, Israel's past cast away brought about reconciling to the world, the world to God. What now that they too be reconciled to God? Chapter 11, verse 15. So let's look at verse 11. Um. Uh, No, let's look at verse 15. I think I got the numbers wrong there. Verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I mean, the birth of Israel in 1948, that, that, that was like a resurrection. I mean, they were dead. We think of the valley of the dry bones that God set before Ezekiel. Back in the Old Testament, chapter 37, verses 11 and 12. Uh, he took him to a valley who was full of dry bones. And he brought those dry bones together, didn't he? And he eventually brought them back to life. 
for the reconciling of the world, what shall be if life come from the dead, namely the Jews? For the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the, if the root be holy, so are the branches. Now, a transition is taking place here, and uh, Paul is appealing to Old Testament revelation about what he wants to teach. And he's uh, taking an old illustration to introduce a new illustration. The castaway Israel comes from a holy, holy means set apart, ancestry, making them still as descendants and holy or set-apart people. They are still unique in spite of the rejection of Messiah and sin because they are a set-apart people because of who their fathers are. Now, the old illustration is the lump of dough. And you can read about this in Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. But in uh, one of the sacrifices of the Old Testament time, they would take a lump of dough and they would give a portion of it to the Lord. That was the first fruits. And they did the first fruits offering in many different ways. The, the first fruits of the lamb, the lamb that opened the womb, the, 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 the grain, and, and the dough, and different things. But to, here it's the dough. And when they gave that first, first part of the dough in sacrifice, it, it sanctified the whole lump. The first part was an offering of sincere faith, giving it to God, and then the whole lump was Set, sanctified and set apart for God. Well, now he's going to change the illustration here to an olive tree that has root and branches. And uh, the root, the root is a special root. It's, it's the first fruits. In fact, it's the covenant of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob in the new illustration question, what is the root? What is the root here? This is a question that uh, by, by, by zeroing in on the previous page to the word nation in 1019 and redefining his people in verse 11 and choosing a particular definition for the root in verse uh, 16, 17 following, the replacement theologians swept this whole passage upside down so that it doesn't insist that the nation of Israel will go forward. And I want to tell you they can be very convincing. I mean, just, just understand. Uh, they, 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 they study it out. Uh, uh, and you want, here's, here's the kind of thing that, you, that can happen to you. Um, there was a team of workers and one of them got mixed up in Reformed theology. Well, on his way to work, he listened to the radio to some of these well-known, famous replacement theologian evangelist teachers. And so he had everything kind of straight in his mind as far as replacement theology is concerned when he got to work. And during lunch and break, he'd ask questions and work over his fellow employees. And, you know, he'd stump them. Because, number one, some of them had no exposure to it. And others of them uh, just weren't fresh. And it can be very deceptive. It can be very deceptive. When they frame it in their framework and define the terms and choose the text, it can be very deceptive. I just warn you. So listen closely, and next time we talk about replacement theology, whenever that may be, 
it's important that you understand what the scriptures say because the scriptures can be twisted and wrenched by the choice of definitions and the choice of verses to say things they do not say. The trunk or root of the tree here is Abraham and, and, and Jacob and Isaac. I'm take a little bit of time to, to, to demonstrate that. But I, but I say, uh, in the context of the whole scripture, it's very clear, but many people have a hard time taking all, all the truths throughout the scripture, kind of the background of the scripture, and applying it specifically. It's too much for them. They need one verse here and one verse there. Well, here are the verses here and there. But they're really diminutive in terms of the big picture of the scriptures. Romans 9, 4, and 5. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever. Now that word fathers there I don't know. I feel a little bit ashamed and a little bit stupid. Uh, I kind of thought of that as the Father God, but it's plural. It's talking about their fathers. It's talking about the covenants with their fathers. Uh, it says, again, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. Those are commitments that God made to their fathers that are eternal and that they still stand in line to receive because they're descendants of their father Abraham. And then again, Deuteronomy chapter 7, for thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. This is a very very meaningful, important passage in the Old Testament that talks about why God picked Israel. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. That's Moses speaking, so Abraham has already lived and died hath the Lord brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, their king. Um, it's of note that in Jeremiah, uh, Israel is referred to as a green olive tree, which is what is involved here. But the point is this. God chose them, and he made commitments, promises to them. And then in Romans 11, chapters 11, 28, and 29, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but it's touching the election. They are beloved for the Father's sake, not God the Father's sake. They are beloved for the sake of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who God made commitments to and which haven't been fulfilled and kept yet, and so he's still, he's still going to keep them to their children, and these people stand in line as their children. But they can't receive them if they're not believing. Okay? And so we move on. The great illustration of the olive tree. We're just going to go through this verse by verse and look at it. And as some of the branches were broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. And that's a real mouthful there. And if some of the branches be broken off, 
Now here's a tree, olive tree, that's grown its own natural branches, okay? The nation of Israel is different than the church. In order to be a part of the true church, the body of Christ, you have to be saved. But in order to be a part of the nation of Israel, you did not have to be saved. You were part of the nation of Israel ethnically. And so as we look at this olive tree in, in, at the time of Christ, with Israel being the Old Testament, there are branches on it, natural branches, and some of them are bleeding. We find out over here that it says that in the text. And some of them are unbelieving, and, and God breaks off the unbelieving branches and, and, and then uh, puts in believing branches, which are Gentiles, which are Gentiles. And some of the branches, not all of them, because not all of the branches are unsaved, uh, not some, just some of them are broken off because some of them are genuinely saved. And thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in. Now, being a wild olive tree meant that if you were part of the, tree, the natural tree, then the root was Abraham. You had the promises of Abraham in your behalf as a descendant. But if you're from a wild olive tree, you've got nothing to claim. You've got no commitment from God to do anything for you. You're just the dirt of the earth. You've not been selected or chosen out in any special way, and yet God takes the wild olive tree and grafts it in among them, among the believing, and with them partakes of the root and fatness of the olive tree. In other words, here are, here's this tree with branches. Israel, first of all, and some are saved and some are not, and God breaks away the unsaved ones and leaves the saved. And then Christ dies, and Gentiles start believing, and he starts grafting the Gentiles in. Well, now the thing that supplies, you're, you're buying this morning, the thing that supplies the fullness and the richness and the sustenance for the whole tree is the root, which is Abraham's covenant, his promise that he would bless them that bless them, that he would give them a nation, a land, and so forth. And now the, and now the, Gentile believers benefit from that covenant that was made with Abraham. You remember, there was a certain stipulation of that covenant made with Abraham that was for somebody beyond the Jewish nation. Do you remember that? Look back to chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out from thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. That's to Israel. Abraham's descendants, physical descendants. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. That's all to his physical descendants. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. And in thee, get this, shall all families of the earth be blessed. Through him, namely Christ and his death, all nations can see people saved, and they, they get grafted into the tree then because they become an heir, a benefiter of the Abrahamic covenant because through the Abrahamic covenant, they are all blessed with Christ who gave his life and now qualifies them to be a part of the tree. Do you get the picture? Beautiful picture. Okay, let's go on. Boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root bearest thee. Again, what Brother Reisinger said this morning. Uh, don't get too headstrong here. 
you're not in this tree. You, you haven't been grafted in because of anything you did. Uh, you're, you're not being sustained. You know, it's the, prom, the thing that made it possible is God's promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations through Abraham, which was Christ who died and made it possible for all nations as well as Israelites to be saved. That's what it's saying here. So don't, don't get too cocky. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I'm better than they are. Oh, no, you're not. You're a wicked, wretched sinner, just like those Israelites were wicked, wretched sinners. It's only by the, it's only by the what? Grace. By the grace of God that you're grafted in. Only by the grace of God. Nothing did you do makes you better than them. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. See, that's what we said a moment ago. There were both kinds of limbs. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. You know, humility is a characteristic of a believer. And even though we can be certain of our salvation, it gives us strength. We don't go around bragging about our salvation while we do all kinds of wickedness. Oh, no. There's a fear. Our God is a consuming fire. There are consequences to our wickedness. There's loss of reward. And there's discipline in this life. You don't want that. Oh, don't. No. No. Uh, don't be high-minded, but fear. For if God spare not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Here's this natural branch that by blood is related to Abraham and thereby to the promises of Abraham that grows in the tree. It belongs there. But here you are, a wild branch that has been picked and put into the tree. You're a pretty, pretty, pretty privileged person to be grafted into that tree. You got no credentials. You got no claim against God. No, you're just a plain old wild, tart, scrubby, shrinked, unhealthy looking olive branch. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity, yes. They didn't believe. They deserved it. They were they were they were they were of the stock of Abraham. But toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Walk in the fear of God. Now, as this talks about individual believers, it's talking too, in a certain sense, about the nation of Israel and Gentile believers. Gentile believers. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Verse 23, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. He is. He's able to do it. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree? Now, this, this picture of the olive tree here and, and, this, and this grafting has been twisted. You know, you left one of the words out in my formula for interpretation this morning. Can you guys tell me what it was? My students. Literal, grammatical, historical. 
cultural. There was, by the way, uh, you said something later that directly applied that. Something they were doing with the grapevines that was culturally oriented. Well, here's a culture thing somewhat too. They never took a sprout from a wild, let me get this right, They never took a sprout from a wild tree and grafted it into the trunk of a good tree. From a wild tree to a good tree. They never did that. Uh, because that, that generally doesn't bring good fruit. They'd take a sprout from a good tree and they would graft it into a bad tree's stump so they got good olives out of a bad stump. So in order to make the illustration here, it's, it's been just exactly reversed from the husbandry that was normally practiced. Which means, essentially, that when the normal practice is to take a good branch and graft it into a wild trunk, if God's taking a bad branch and grafting it into a good trunk, which is what he does with a Gentile, that's what a Gentile is. He's a, bad, a branch off a bad tree grafted into a good tree. You're a pretty fortunate person. That's not the way it's done. That's not what you expect to be done. They, they don't do it that way. But God does. God can do anything the way he wants, but he has to be true to his character, and he has to keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So look at this verse again in light of that, verse 24. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature, that's the key there, into the good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? The more likelihood for success in farming. Now, we get to this last section here, and I, I really get excited, even though I'm running out of gas here this afternoon. I really get excited about this, verses 25 and 26. The final solution or salvation of Israel. Uh, God wants you to know, number one, well, let's read it. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant. You need to know about this. Okay, are you listening? You need to know about this. A mystery is something that has been hidden or kept secret and not made known to men in previous ages, but now has been made known and revealed in this present age by the New Testament apostles and prophets. We're a privileged people. We have a bigger view of what God is doing. Okay, so here we go. I would not that you be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Here it is, number one, that blindness has happened to Israel. We found that out in the previous section, didn't we? They rejected the light, and when they got into darkness, it was even darker, and so they couldn't see the Lord because it's even darker than it was before. So there's a blindness. Not many Jews get saved. Some do. But it's very hard. The Jewish mission field has traditionally and always been a very difficult mission field. If you read the Jewish missionaries, there's two of them in particular that I follow. Uh, they really get excited when somebody responds with a, with a Bible study or to their testimony. Okay? So there's, there's uh, blindness. But it's in part, number two. There are some Jews who get saved. So don't stop witnessing to them. Don't stop reaching out to them. As Paul said, I think, in, 
Acts or one of the epistles to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Don't ever give up on them. You're supposed to be a testimony to them as he instructed us to do because their blindness is in part. And there are many Jews today who are praising the Lord because they know Christ Messiah. I've got one of them, uh, Book Fruchtenbaum is his name, very insightful in prophecy, who, who was a Jew and came to know Christ. And as a result of that, just like the Apostle Paul's background groomed him for what he did, this man's background groomed him immensely for the book that he's written that is, that is not all where I think it should be, but it's a lot of good points. Okay? In part has happened, so not all. Until, in other words, it's, it's, there are a few, and there is a time limit until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, there's two phrases in Scripture, and I'm, I'm almost done here, and I'm only over five minutes. If I hold on and work fast, maybe I can beat Brother Reisinger and not go over more than six or seven minutes. <laughs> it does a preacher good, brother, when somebody else has trouble keeping the material within the time frame. <laughs> uh, where was I? Okay, fullness of the Gentiles. It's not the times of the Gentiles. It's the fullness of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is... I got any students over here? Some of my students aren't here. Elijah, what's the times of the Gentiles? Loud! from 586 B.C. to the revelation of Jesus Christ, namely the period of time which Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would be overtread by the Gentiles. It started with Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar wiped out the temple. It will end when Jesus Christ sits foot on Mount Zion at the end of the tribulation. Now, there have been some temporary occupations and even one today. But the one today is not permanent because in the middle of the tribulation, Antichrist is going to take over Jerusalem. It has to be permanent. So from 586 B.C. to the revelation of Jesus Christ is the times of the Gentiles. And if you want to know what they're going to look like, then you look at Daniel chapter 2, the great image, Daniel chapter 7, the four beasts, Daniel chapter 13, the beast that comes out of the sea, and Daniel chapter 16, the beast with six heads. And those four visions will tell you what it's going to be like during the times of the Gentiles, the succession of nations and powers. Amazing. It's amazing. But this is the fullness of the Gentiles. One translation has put it like this. By the way, the times of the Gentiles is defined in Luke 21, 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. That's the definition. And the, and the name is the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. Okay. We're talking about the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, one translation or paraphrase, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The church today, which is God's primary program, is full of Gentiles now, not many Jews. And when the last Gentile God wants to put into the body comes into the body, up it goes. Why? Because the body's become full. It's become complete. It's where Christ wants it to be. When that last person is saved, you didn't know evangelists say that all the time. You may be the last person. You get saved today, we may all go up in the next few minutes. Anybody here unsaved, we get saved today so we can see what happens. When that last one comes into the church, it's full and it goes up. 
And what's it say is going to happen when that, when, that, when that church goes up? What's it say, somebody? Look at your Bibles. Look at the verse. Look at it. The fullness until the fullness, of the, what's until the fullness of the Gentiles come in? It's not hard. Ethan, what is it? Read verse 25, Ethan, nice and loud. Sorry, these young guys can handle being put on the spot with such a great multitude as we have this afternoon. You got verse 25 there? Louder. Okay, what's temporary there? What's only until the fullness of the Gentiles? Blindness. The blindness. When the church goes up, the blindness that's plagued the Jewish people since the time of Christ is going to be relieved. That means there's going to be mass conversions of Jews during the tribulation. 144,000 to begin with. That's very interesting. And so all Israel shall be saved. There's going to come a point in the tribulation period, and when you study this out, you'll see how it develops, that all of a sudden there are some things that are going to happen as God makes events take place that are going to make the Jews go, wait a minute! It's true, the gospel's true, and they're going to believe, and the whole nation's going to get saved. By the election of God but also by the repentance, free will decision, or cry, not decision, but cry of the Jews. It is tremendously interesting. I, I have been developing my chart. Uh, I've got the kids memorizing about seven points, you know. the starts with the uh, resurrection, the ascension, the Pentecost, the church age, the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation, by the way, which is not right after the rapture necessarily, the midpoint of the revelation, abomination of desolation, the end of the tribulation, Armageddon and the return of Christ, the interim period, 75 days to the kingdom, the kingdom for a thousand years, the second Gog and Magog to end the kingdom, the great white throne, the uh, new heavens and the new earth, and the eternal state. Those are benchmarks. And in my studies of collecting verses, I've put probably 15 or 20 other events under each of those headings from Scripture. They are part of the development. I'm still working on exactly when that national conversion is going to take place. It's probably going to be either right after the midpoint of the tribulation or at the end near the revelation. There's very few that hold any other position than that. But they're going to wake up and they're going to see the truth. They're going to get saved as a nation and then populate the kingdom as a saved nation. Hey, go back to verse... Chapter 11, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Wait till you see what's going to happen with his people. In fact, we read about the fullness of the Gentiles. Look back here in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? The Jews are going to have a fullness too for all that they accomplish 
And that'll be at the end of the millennial kingdom, I believe. And so, how marvelous. Uh, verse 26, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. For this is my covenant unto them. Jeremiah 31, 33, promise. When I shall take away their sins, God's divine election. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, the root of the tree, the election grafted onto the tree. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. They must be fulfilled. For as ye in times past have not believed God, ye have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. Everybody, everybody's God's plans bringing everybody to him. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and dear Father. Thank you. Thank you for your marvelous plan. Thank you for this little glimpse and how you can take things that are confusing and backwards to us and turn them into something that glorifies you. Lord, I pray you'd move in the hearts of each person here this afternoon that they rejoice in this book they hold, that they'd rejoice in the salvation, the vine they're a part of, that they would serve thee faithfully in this week. In Jesus' name, amen.